This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. We're here today with Wharton professors Howard Kunruther and Robert Meyer to talk about their new book, The Ostrich Paradox, Why We Underprepare for Disasters. Howard and Robert, thanks for being with us. Thanks so much. Now, I first wanted to ask you about the title of the book, because like most people, I assumed what it meant was that we should we should not be like ostriches, that we should not keep our heads in the sand when it comes to disasters. But actually, it turns out that that's not quite the case. So could you tell us? Yeah, about absolutely. That? The um, uh, that, What motivated the book is we were very much interested in writing about uh, why it is that uh, we can't seem to get a hold on disasters, that, that even though scientific abilities to forecast uh, hurricanes and so forth has really grown considerably over the years, that hasn't really been matched with, a, with a, any sort of a noticeable decrease in the, uh, uh, in the costs, both in terms of lives and monetary losses from, uh, from natural disasters or, or man-made disasters. And, and often the, the reason that that's given is whenever that happens, we say that, well, people are putting their heads in the sand. They're, they're ostriches. And, uh, and that's sort of the, the old cartoon uh, notion of what an ostrich is when threat is coming and a lion is coming, they dig their head in the sand and sort of pretend it doesn't exist. Um, and it turns out that actually that that's, uh, uh, ostriches have been given a, a, a severe bum rap for that over the years because actually ostriches are incredibly good at dealing with risk. Uh, they have enormous limitations. They can't fly, but, they, but the nature has allowed them to overcome that by having enormous ground speed and have all sorts of uh, risk avoidance strategies. So then it occurred to us that actually therein is sort of like might be a, a key to the way in which we can get people to be better uh, at preparing for risk rather than being uh, less like ostriches, actually to be more like ostriches. To first start off and say, what are the limitations that we have? What are the psychological limitations that prevent us from being better at preparing for disasters? And once we understand what those are, are think about ways in which we can better adapt to those limitations. So we're more like ostriches rather than less, hence the paradox. Yeah. And the only point I'd want to add to Bob's comment is uh, that I learned a bit about ostriches just in the context of the, uh, the discussion that the two of us had together in terms of what they did, and also that we do bury our heads in the sand often. And so in some sense, we felt that in a way, using the ostrich as, the, as a way of an analogy to kind of the things that we do, we might be in a position for people to pay attention. And I think the real challenge in any of this area is for people to pay attention before something happens rather than afterwards. And ostriches are very good at doing that. And we hope that human beings can do a better job than they have up until now. Right. I mean, the book actually starts with a really interesting example of Galveston, Texas. It was two, I believe it was hurricanes, hundreds of years apart, maybe almost, but the same reaction, even though for the second time, technology had advanced significantly, science had advanced significantly, communications had advanced significantly, and yet there was still this same under-response to the disaster. And I wondered, I guess the book is actually full of stories like this. Was there one in particular that inspired the book? Well, actually, let me jump in there, because for for me, the thing that inspired is actually a story which is not in the book, okay? And uh, and it was like in, I think it was 2008, I was um, uh, visiting New Orleans, and I decided 
decided uh, to take a drive along the Mississippi Gulf Coast. And as I was driving along near the town of Pas Christian, Mississippi, which was an area which had been devastated by Hurricane Katrina, I was sort of noticing how, how quickly the place had recovered and there was what, what, there was just a lot of nice grass fields. And I was walking along, the, I was uh, driving along the road and I noticed that in one of the fields was uh, an ATM machine that was just sitting up by itself. And, uh, and, I, and I looked at that and I pulled over and I said, what's an ATM machine doing out in the middle of a field? So I kind of walked up to it and I looked at it and then I began looking around and then I discovered afterwards that what, what this was was used to be a shopping center that used to be right on the coast that had been uh, completely destroyed by Hurricane Katrina and the only thing that was left was uh, the, 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 the uh, ATM machine. And then I kind of did, I was interested in this, this, how this happened and then the interesting thing was it turned out that this shopping center was built on a, the exact same spot that in 1969 a condominium complex used to be there and 23 people died when the condominium complex was blown away by a hurricane. And, and so basically, and so I contacted the, the, the person who, was, uh, who, who owned the land of the shopping center and I said, did you know that this used to be, have this horrible history? And they said, yeah, it'd been, but it had been so many years since there had been a storm. I didn't, we didn't think it was in my, under much risk. And so then I said, well, what do you plan to do with the property? It says, well, we're thinking about uh, selling it and hope to put a, build up a condominium complex here again. And so I was sitting there and I was thinking, there's got to be a story there. There's, there. There has to be, uh, uh, you know, why, why is it that we kind of keep, uh, don't learn from experience? Why is it that we're, we're not better at thinking ahead in terms of what the, the consequences are of, of, uh, of, uh, of threats like this? And so what are all the different types of psychological factors that, that cause us to be so poor at preparing for disasters? I think that uh, just to follow up on, on a story in the book that actually did start it off is a story of Glenda Moore, who uh, was in a position where she had to figure out what decision she was going to make after Hurricane Sandy. And I think all of us were very, very cognizant of the challenges we face after a storm occurs in, in the sense that we know there are things we should do and we have things that we might not do, but we don't really know them as well as we should. And I think that Glenda Linda's first concern was to be with her husband, who had actually left, and she was in Brooklyn, and made a set of decisions without necessarily carefully thinking them out. And our concern, I think, in, uh, with respect to pointing this out to others is that to a large extent, we react to situations at the moment without necessarily doing an analysis of all of the possible dangers. And the communication mechanisms are sometimes good, but we sometimes don't hear them. And so she actually made some decisions to leave that actually resulted in her losing her children. And as a result of that, uh, there was a whole set of media attention given to that. And our feeling was it was a way to start the book to point out the fact that we would like everyone to reflect on what could happen after a disaster and do some steps beforehand to prepare and also to listen to the kinds of things that one is hearing and try to get the right kind of information so one doesn't do the things that could result in tragedy. And now you actually outlined six different biases that may be at play that may lead to some of this under preparation mm. for disasters. And I, somewhere in the book you had mentioned, or maybe it was in this other interview that came with my book, about that perhaps the most dangerous one of these six might be optimism, which I thought was very interesting just because we usually think of that as a good thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, 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 no, absolutely. I think, in fact, it is the good thing to have in life. I mean, uh, you know, we're, we've been fortunately endowed with an optimistic outlook uh, uh, and so forth. The problem is, is that, in fact, I think this is true with almost with all of the biases that we talk about in the book. These are things which, uh, which were the reason why we have them is they serve a good functional purpose. And most of the time and most of the, the decisions we face on a day-to-day basis, they basically serve us well. And um, however, it's also the case that when, when you suddenly now we're in a situation of facing very, very rare events, things that we, decisions we don't have to make on a day-to-day basis. Uh, that's where when you start applying these same heuristics, all of a sudden, all sorts of stuff goes wrong. And optimism is a great case of that. Um, you know, it, it is good to look on the bright side of life and all of that sort of thing. However, when uh, when you're talking about something that might happen to you that might be mean the end of your life, uh, then being optimistic is not necessarily the best thing to do. And and uh, and one of the things we talk about is sort of you know what, what are the different ways in which people become erroneously optimistic in a way that's harmful. And I think one of the things with optimism is that we try to find ways to sort of defend our optimism. And so we think about a a, a disaster, a flood or a hurricane. We don't really want to think about those disasters. We're optimistic because we are living in an area that we say, this is a great place for us to live. And we want to sort of keep that image alive. And so we say, well, let's, you know, this is so low. The chances of anything happening are so low that we're not going to really think about it. It won't happen to us. It may happen to others. It won't happen to us. It's below, we use the expression, our threshold level of concern. We're not going to worry. So we keep that optimistic bias in the sense of trying to avoid having to think about things that we probably should be thinking about beforehand. And our whole idea in bringing that up, along with the four or five other, we have six biases, uh, is to say they're all connected in some sense. Uh, And in one way or another, we have to try to figure out ways to let people know that these are things that we all do. And we all have our own personal examples. And then we can think about ways to improve the decisions by trying to avoid them in the future. And now your method of improving this, what you lay out in the book, is called the behavior risk audit. And this sort of this involves looking at each of these risks and kind of turning, I mean, each of these biases and kind of turning them on their heads and seeing how can we create policies that actually address these biases and maybe get around them. Can you talk a little bit about how people could do this? Well, let let me illustrate with one, and and Bob may pick another one. Um, Myopia is one of the biases that we have. People have very, very short-term, we all have short-term horizons. We want to get immediate returns in some sense. And if there are things that we can do for the long term, we often find they are very prohibitively expensive, they're costly, we can't really do them. Let's take an example of having to make our house safer against uh, Hurricane Sandy or a flood uh, or a hurricane. Uh, there's a lot of cost to doing that. You could elevate your house, but that's very costly. You could maybe floodproof it. You could do a set of things. And people will say, well, look, what are the benefits that I'm going to get from that in the next period. And so they'll be very reluctant to put in the money because they say the benefits we have to get are going to be very short run. And they're right. I mean, in some sense, if you're going to get a short run benefit like a reduction in your insurance premium, uh, you'll say, well, I'm not going to get enough to pay for that expense. So we would recommend that 
instead of thinking about just the long term with respect to this, there are two things that one can do. One is you might give a person a loan to help them out and spread the cost over time. And the other thing to deal with the it won't happen to me, instead of saying it's going to be a one in a hundred chance of a flood occurring next year, which is kind of what the probability is, stretch the time and say to people, think about the fact that there might be a, a hurricane in the next 30 years. And that likelihood is greater than one in four or one in five. And then people will think about the long term and maybe decide that they can take some action. Yeah, another example, another one of the biases we talk about is uh, is simplification, and the and the idea there is is that most people don't like to consider lots of different factors when making decisions, and uh, and one feature of this is a thing called a single action bias, and what it is is that when you're faced with a problem, uh, you base as soon as you take like one action to try to solve it, there's a tendency for your brain to go good, there was the problem, I took some action, problem solved. And uh, so in a lot of walks of life, that's kind of an okay thing to do. But think about it in the context of, of preparing for natural disasters when, in fact, there's large numbers of things that you need to do. Or, or you're trying to build a safer house in which, in order to make the house structurally sound, there's lots of different things that you have to do. Well, often, kind of historically, the way in which uh, agencies like uh, uh, NOAA and, and FEMA and whatnot have encouraged people to prepare for disasters is to give them checklists. And the checklist will have 60 items on them. And it will say, make sure you do this with your dog, make sure you do this, and so forth. Well, the single action bias will say people are going to ignore most of those things. But they are going to see the list. They are going to be aware that there's a threat. The problem is is that they're going to go down this list randomly and take care of the dog or whatever. And once they've done that, that's the end of the list. And they feel that they're sort of prepared for the disaster when and they're they're really not. So, So one of the remedies for that is to say, now that we know people simplify and they tend to focus on one action, what an agency needs to do is don't give them a massive checklist. Say, if you're going to do one thing, here's the one thing to do. Okay? And once you've done that, here's the second thing to do. And you have to kind of walk people through that. And that's going to be a much more effective way of, 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 of uh, getting people to prepare. Now, do you know of examples of agencies or governments or companies that are that are doing things like this, that have developed policies like this, or do we do they all need to get a copy of the book? They got to get a copy of the book. <laughs> well, they okay. Definitely have to get. <laughs> yeah. it. Okay. And, but uh, I'll give one example, and and related to what I said a few moments ago, the Federal Emergency Management Agency is very concerned with communicating risk, yeah. and they have actually changed the way they're presenting information on the flood hazard. They used to talk about a one in a hundred year flood or return period. They're now telling people, think about the next 30 years when you uh, and what could happen to you. And you should be considering buying insurance for next year. Even though uh, you are thinking about the fact that it's low probability, it could be greater than such and such for one in four for a disaster to occur. So they are actually trying to take that seriously. We don't, But they have to do this in such a way that they communicate so people at least read that, which of course is a challenge in and of itself. I mean, because I would think with that, it's like they're taking it from 100 to 30 actually takes it back within the realm of their lifetime. So they're doing it for them, not for the people who are going to live there in the future. That's exactly right. They want to get a reasonable time period. But if they said and, and and, and when they do that, they, of course, stretch the probability and make it a lot higher than it would occur next year. Now, could a family or an individual 
use this behavior risk audit to help themselves prepare for disasters, or is it more for policymakers or companies? No, I think it absolutely can be used for for individual households because I think that often it's the case that that uh, often it's the case the companies themselves at a very very high level are actually fairly good at thinking through all the details and having very well developed um, you know risk avoidance plans or something like that. For example, a a, a utility company is actually tend to be very good at this sort of thing. On the other hand, uh, a lot of the what we're, this book I think is a little bit more targeted at is uh, organizations which aren't necessarily all that experts in terms of risk preparation. And so for any given family, uh, you need to sit down and think through, well, well, how is it that we as a family are thinking about risk? And these biases actually even more so apply there. Um, and Howard was given the example of start, that started out the book about uh, the Glenda Moore family where a woman um, uh, hastily put her children into a van and then took them down and uh, in front of the and they, they, she lost the children in, in, in a hastily in a hasty evacuation. I, the, you know, we would like to think that this is a book which can, can help households like that uh, make sure that those events never occur. And what it does is it says, look, you know, when you're faced with disasters, these are the kind of mistakes that you're likely to make, and it's not because there's something wrong with you. You're just human, and these are these are are hard grain, hard wired biases that we have. And if once we understand what those are, you can kind of anticipate the kind of mistakes you're going to make. And so, and then that's the first step in trying to avoid them. Here's what our hope is. There are a series of stories that are graphic, and people do react to graphic stories in a way that they don't react to just the facts or whatever. And, and our hope is that people will read these stories and recognize that it can happen to them in some way, and it has happened to others, and that they'll pay attention to the very last part of the book on here are ways to improve. And then we would like to use one of our biases that we hope makes this book more than just one person reading it, and that's the herd effect. And we hope that there will be somehow a notion that people will see this and say, you know, this is something I'd like to talk to a few other people about. And it isn't just our situation. It may be others. And I hope it becomes a topic which generally is not a topic of conversation of the fact that we have these kinds of biases. We have these things. And we all think of our own sets of activities that might reflect that. And we have our own personal ones which we can experience. And that that becomes really more of a social norm that this is something that people should recognize they have. And there's a tendency with the, with the kinds of events we're talking about for people not to want to pay attention. And our hope is that the stories that we tell here will resonate enough so that people will want to actually think about them. I mean, it seems like we don't, you know, we hear about hurricanes when they're a day away or two days away mm-hmm. or maybe in the immediate aftermath, but then we don't hear about them again mm-hmm. until the next one comes along. And you talk a lot about those types of events in the book, but you also talk about more long range events specifically about about climate change which is not something that the be- the worst part of it's not going to happen tomorrow or next week next year maybe even not in the next decade but how does the behavior risk audit apply to something like that where it's more of a long term broader risk well, this is a real challenge, and I think we recognize it. It's a challenge that we're facing right now because climate change is not necessarily being discussed in a way that I think uh, we would like to see it discussed. It is a critical problem, um, and Miami, where Bob has lived there for a while and can, and can talk about that directly, is 
facing major problems with sea level, possible sea level rise, and people may not be paying attention right now. And I think what we would say, I mean, a way to say it is, first of all, construct some scenarios that you begin to see what might happen and think about how you can take some steps now to avoid those scenarios and also to think about the fact that it isn't just yourselves, but there's future generations at stake. And what is going to be, what is this going to do to my children and my great uh, grandchildren? And how can we take some steps and try to make the case to recognize that there's a tendency to say this is not going to happen and it won't happen necessarily tomorrow, but there has to be planning. And it isn't just for the individuals, it's for communities. And that's why I point out Miami being one example of that. Uh, yeah, the, the, as Howard said, I think long-run risk is very difficult. Uh, and particularly if it's the case of, let's say, if you're living in, in any coastal area and you're worried about sea level rise, and you say, well, scientists are forecasting that in 60 to 70 years, this area that you're living in is going to be underwater. Uh, well, that's I'm not going to be living there in 60, 70 years, so why should I particularly care about that? And you know, wh- wh- how do I justify that? And this is particularly the case for communities who are thinking about doing things like raising taxes and bond issues to put up public works projects to prevent sea level rise when the people who are voting for them are going to have to pay these taxes aren't going to be the ones that are actually going to be benefiting from it. And so I I think that that people might understand, well, maybe we need to take care of it, but maybe we should just do this next year, okay? uh, It's an easy thing to put off. Yeah, it's it's easy to put off because nothing's going to change that much. And so, so of course, what happens is you keep putting it off till next year and it never never gets done. So some of the things we were kind of thinking about within the book are, are what are ways in which you can kind of get people to take uh, safe actions or have a culture of safety in a situation where they don't have to, they're, they're not, net, they're, the uncertainty is actually not, uh, is on taking risk rather than, um, than not taking risk. So for example, um, normally it's the case of you have your, your city budget and one of the light items should be, should we put multi-million dollars into a pumping system? Okay. And that's an add-on. And then you have to think through, is this a good use of the money now? Well, what if it was the case that every year, just the standard starting point in the in the in the community budget that there's money set aside for infrastructure improvements, but then that can be removed. So all of a sudden, then the discussion is: uh, Do we want to not take a safe action this year or not? And then that might be just enough to basically keep some of those items still on the budget, which they might have might have otherwise been removed. And the hope is through those little sorts of steps that might be, we get a little bit closer to dealing with some of these these extremely difficult long run problems. And you could couple just what Bob is saying with the notion of let's not make sh- make sure we don't have the cost immediately on top of right. us. Having a long-term loan so that you do spread it over a number of years will make it more attractive. And then if you can show that there are benefits that are going to occur even in the short run, that maybe property values will go up. Maybe people will want to move into the area and you can sell your home a little more easily by va- fa- the fact that one recognizes the community is taking steps now to avoid this problem that might be really serious 20 or 30 years from now, and now would be a lot less serious. And I think those are problems facing coastal cities, again, bringing up Miami, that really has to be concerned about what is going to happen to the property values of their homes all of a sudden when people say, we're not really taking the steps, and now we are seeing that this is going to be a major problem. So I think if we can combine these things with economic incentives, with the default option that Bob mentioned, and which is one of our notions, is if you don't do this, the fact is you have to say, I'm not going to do this, rather than I'm going to do this. And also to recognize one of the challenges, and Bob brought it up very directly on the political process, we have a little acronym that we occasionally use, and I'll use it right now, uh, NIMTOF, 
not in my term of office. If we can avoid that, avoid the notion of having expended and recognize that there are benefits of being doing this in my term of office rather than saying it's not in my term of office, then I think we have a chance of at least getting people to pay attention. Now, what about different kinds of risks like political risks? Some of the things that I read in the book really reminded me a little bit of some of the things that, you know, you heard people in the UK say around the time of Brexit that, oh, this won't happen, it won't pass, or even around the time of the election that I feel like there was maybe some myopia or or optimism at play a little bit there. I mean, do you think that the principles in the book can apply to different types of risk other than natural disasters or environmental risk? Well, uh, I mean, we haven't thought explicitly about Brexit uh, in terms of that or use an example. But I think there is a, a notion here that the, of a feeling that people may not really necessarily appreciate all the elements of a particular problem. I think that's what I would want to use. And I think we could say about Brexit and I think we can say about the election that occurred that there was a degree of optimism by people who felt that they really didn't have to be concerned about necessarily voting in a particular way on the basis of feeling that this was a foregone conclusion that things were going to work out that way. And so in that sense, we come back to the optimism bias uh, in terms of what one hopes will happen but may not actually happen. Yeah, and I, I certainly you can go through those biases and they can provide kind of an explanation for why uh, maybe a lot of people were su- very surprised by the uh, uh, the the, uh, the last election. Or alternatively, looking at half the you know half the country was not at all surprised and the other half was extremely surprised. And and I think that this part that was extremely surprised was influenced by things like herd think. Uh, they went around and the people that they talked to were people who had their same values that they did, and they became under the belief that this is the way the world is. And uh, and 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 so on and so on. And, you know, simplification, there's a tendency to to not look broadly and looking for evidence that maybe there are people out there who don't think like you do. And and when you take all these things together, all of a sudden there's this group think, which in many cases may have led for a lot of people who were, for example, Clinton supporters to feel they didn't need to vote on and so forth. And it's a, such a foregone conclusion. So. Howard and Robert, thanks for being with us. Yeah, Thank glad you. to be here. Thanks. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.